Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that's shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, personal relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong partners. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insight into their hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? Our team at Responsive is looking forward to getting back on the road in 2022. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All you need to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 to 40 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There's no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, reach out to me today. Before I introduce today's guest, let me say that we're having important conversations here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with individuals whose voices matter in the fundraising space and the nonprofit sector in general. Sometimes our opinions clash and sometimes they align. What's important is that we're having the conversation. If you have an opinion, whether I agree with you or not, let's hear it, let's elevate it, and let's wrestle with it. I want you to influence my thinking on these things. And more importantly, I want your ideas and opinions to influence the thousands of listeners who are downloading our podcast every month. If you want to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, reach out and let's make sure you're included in an upcoming lineup. Hi, Lisa. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. Uh, you have been, you're one of the four and you were the featured uh, uh, author in our most recent uh, edition of Carefully and Critically. I'm delighted to, that we found some time here this afternoon to uh, to catch up with each other and talk about your article uh, you've been a guest on the podcast before, but uh, let's have you uh, introduce yourself to our listeners just for those who don't know you. 
Jason, again, thank you so much. This has been such a honor just walking this journey with you and, you know, yet again, um, being um, a part of your your ecosystem that you've built over here at a fun, a responsive fundraising. I really appreciate it. Um, my name is Lisa Baxter. I have been a fundraising practitioner. Now it'll be, wow, going into 15 years um, working at um, healthcare and youth-driven nonprofit organizations. Um, this time I am self-describing myself um, based on all the work that I have done as a community builder, um, heart speaker, a scribe, um, and an equity activist. And um, it's just been the I think it's a culmination of all the things that I have been through and grown through um, during these 15 years. And I'm just so excited to talk about it and just, you know, share my story with others. So thank you again for having me on. You know, before we hit the record button, Lisa, we were sort of just simmering on the idea that there's probably a lot of us out there. I mean, I, I, I in many ways sort of identify with the same sort of journey that you're on. You think it's the, is it the season? Is it the pandemic? Is it the, what is it? Why, why is it that so many of us sort of feel like we're on this journey at this particular time in history? Well, I think because we've all been through what I call collective trauma, um, you know, the pandemic, which is now an endemic, I, I guess. I don't know. You know, it, 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 we never know what, what's going to happen um, on, any, on any given day. But um, I just think that's the time we're in. The, um, the social unrest, the, the, the injustices that have been have the light has been shunned brighter on everything and everyone. It has been a lot to process. And the reason why we were able to do that is because we were all sitting down locked up in our houses and we couldn't go anywhere. So we had to sit in it. And, you know, if you think of if anybody out there has gone to therapy, you know that when you are healing and you're in that process, you have to sit in your stuff. And that's that's one of the hardest things to do. And so, um, you know, I was saying earlier, they call this the great resignation, but I think it's the great awakening. Everybody is awakening to themselves. Um, understanding what's important and really trying to figure out, well, how am I going to move forward in a way that really allows me to fully live and be who I am? And most of all, be joyous. Um, I think if I've learned anything from this moment in time is that I just want to be happy, point blank, period. <laughs> and and you're a fundraiser. I'm a fundraiser. Is, mm -hmm. is something sort of brewing within the fundraising space. I mean, you're 43 this year. I'm 43 this year. We've both been in the space, you know, a couple of, we're, we're all, a lot of us are sort of in this, the, the, the name of the journal, for example. I mean, that's why we publish mm -hmm. this thing now, carefully and critically. I think there's so many of us that are sort of looking at the professional space itself. Is there something happening in the, in this fundraising space in your mind? Well, okay. So just to correct you, I'm, I'm 45 now. And in my article, I state that it took me 43 years because that's really when I started to just kind of awaken okay, to myself right, right, and, yes, and yes, be okay. okay with myself. Um, but in terms of the fundraising space, it's nothing that hasn't already been there. Um, you know, I think what's going on has, it's just been systemic. If you speak about, um, if you're talking about you know, the article and what I am addressing, it is that it's the the underlying racism, it's the microaggressions, it's the gaslighting, it's the sabotaging that just happens specifically. And because I can only speak for myself and I just, I want to, you know, 
really um, get your listeners to understand that this has been my experience. However, um, I know other people of the global majority have also experienced this as well. And I just think that people are over it. I'm my, myself, I'm over it. I'm exhausted. Like when I say, you know, I made that reference to a marathon, it's like constantly trying to keep up without stopping. Right. It's like, you know, I gotta, I gotta persist because that's what I'm expected to do. Um, and especially, um, being a black woman, you know, you are looked at as, you know, you have this, this, um, you're given this title, the strong black woman, but well, what about the days when I feel vulnerable? What about the days when I need to be soft? What about the days when I just want to cry, you know, and it, in in the professional world and the personal world, it doesn't it doesn't really leave room for that, unless you you know take it back, unless you give yourself permission to do that. And that's what I'm doing. I have given myself permission to be myself, to feel vulnerable, and to feel all these things because um, I, as much as I love the fundraising sector, there are a lot of things that I don't love about it. And again, it's systemic, just like racism, just like all of the issues that that are going on in the world today. We need to dismantle these systems. And the first step is acknowledging that there is a problem. And, you know, I think it's getting this this, you know, this year and a half. People are understanding there's a problem, but then it's like, okay, well, what are you going to do about it? You know, hold yourself accountable. So um, I just think that this is where we're at. I'm not bringing up anything that is new. Um, what's new is that I'm speaking out about it and I'm not afraid anymore. I used to be afraid of retaliation. I used to be afraid of a lot of different things. Um, but I'm just, I, I'm, I'm more empowered because I know that it's going to empower other people and help other people to, to have that courage to speak out and, and, and make a change somehow. Okay. So you start the, you start the article with the idea that you are totally and unapologetically myself. So who is that now? Yeah. Who is that? Oh my goodness. That's, that's the Lisa that's not trying to be fundraising Barbie. And what I mean by that is, you know, the hair, you know, I would get my hair straightened, you know, everything, yeah. you know, we, back in the day, they said, you know, you had to be well turned out. I was a well turned out fundraising professional. And that's not saying that I'm not professional anymore, but it's just everything from what you wear to what you say to how you carry yourself um, was just under a microscope, you know, and it could be very, very stressful. I mean, the first place that I started my fundraising career at, out of 100 fundraisers, I was really the only African-American fundraiser. And so you can imagine what that must have felt like. And um, and so Lisa today is unapologetic in the sense that I have boundaries and I keep them. Um, I speak up for what's right when it's right. I choose my battles wisely, of course, but um, it's a Lisa that is not afraid of just living in her truth. Um, also, you know, I think a lot of it is, um, is as much as it's, is it the inner, it's the outside as well, because um, as people of the global majority, your bodies get policed so much, you know, like there's a bill that, that, that has been passed so that 
we can, um, black folks can wear their hair in the natural state. And, and to me, that's the craziest thing, right? Um, there's executive presence, which I think is super archaic. And, you know, just because, I don't know, just say if I had a tattoo or something like that doesn't mean I can't do my job, right? Or if just because I don't wear a blue suit, but I instead choose to wear a hot pink one with leopard, you know, leopard skin heels, that doesn't mean that I can't do my job. Or if I have purple hair, right? It doesn't mean I can't do my job. So this Lisa is just very bold. Um, she's empowered and damn it, I'm happy. <laughs> what? Okay. Just, a, just, a, just a couple of sentences later, you say, it's the most liberating feeling in contrast to what my life felt like before I gave myself permission to stop striving, abiding by the archaic rules of executive presence and my extreme tendency to people, please. Yeah. Do, do you think a lot of us are feeling like that? I mean, is that a, is that a universal experience in the fundraising space? I think on some level it is because if you think about the relationships that we have with some of our donors, mm-hmm. you know, there may be instances where, um, you know, they may be, you know, they may say something or do something that you probably normally wouldn't accept from someone else, but because they're your donor, you yeah. do. Right. Yeah. And so there's, I think anyone can relate to those moments and, and, and trying to figure out, well, what do I do in, in that moment? What do I say? How do I approach this in a way that is, you know, someone won't get offended or what have you. But I think right now it's about calling people out and doing it when I, you know, you can call people out in a loving way. Right. Um, I also think that, you know, giving yourself permission, sometimes you don't feel like you have the power. I did not before, honestly, before um, George Floyd was murdered. The things that I talk about now, I, I, I would be very hesitant to have talked about before that. And that's because it kind of opened up the doors to just be truthful and honest and truth does hurt, you know, but once you get past that, then you can actually get to the healing part. Um, and I think in terms of executive presence, you know, just because someone doesn't look a certain way, that doesn't mean that they can't do a good job or that they won't do a good job. You have to get beyond that and you have to really look and find, you know, that person within. And I just and I say that because I, I've seen, you know, when people hire folks and just the comments that are made, if you're on the hiring panel and all of these things, if a person has a name that is too, uh, quote unquote, ethnic, right? It doesn't mean that they're not going to be able to do their job. It's just because of your biases are holding you back from, you know, probably getting someone that would really, you know, bring a great impact to the organization. But because you have those biases, you won't even you won't even find that out. Um, so, yeah, I just think that giving myself permission has been the best thing. And the only way that you can get to that, and I know this has been my personal journey, is when you start really loving yourself. You know, we talk about oh, all these people that we admire. Well, why don't we start admiring ourselves first? Why don't we start admiring the things that we do and the accomplishments, the little accomplishments that we make every day, the big accomplishments that we make? Why don't we start admiring that first so that we can then, you know, really, um, you know, be uh, show respect and be thankful for all of the other ways that we, you know, that, that, um, you know, the things that we want to do are emulated in other people. I think that, um, that's where we need to start. And I know for me, that's where my journey started. I had to look at all the things that I was doing and say, 
is what are my actions really a reflection of, you know, how I feel about myself? And when I really started doing my, my therapy work and my healing, I realized that I was not honoring myself. And when you don't honor yourself, you, you people please, you, you try to do all the things that, you know, that everybody else wants you to do. And then you're the only one that ends up unhappy and you start, you know, being, you have regrets and all of that. And at this point in my life, I can say that I don't feel like that anymore because if it doesn't feel good, I'm not doing it. I don't care what it is. I'm just not doing it. And, um, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with, you know, whatever assumptions have been made about me in that moment in time. Um, I'm just okay with it. And I've never, ever been at that point in my life. And it's very, very liberating. So probably the moment, and, I, and I've, I've read through this a couple of times, and when we were going through the editing phase and everything, we were pulling this particular um, article together and, and, and the rest of the contributors. Um, the statement you make, and, and I'm going to tell, tell a tale here. So when I was an executive director in an organization, I like to think that I am a really great cheerleader. I, I tend to think I'm a pretty good cheerleader. And, and I, I tell my business partner, for example, that, you know, he, he's the one who's sort of going to manage the team and I'm going to be the cheerleader. And we tend to think that that's probably where our strengths are. So Lisa sort of teeing that up. I think you probably know where I'm going here. The comment you make is you say, I've become my biggest cheerleader adept at adept in giving myself pep talks to ease those days. I question my career choice. And when I read between the lines of that statement, were there not cheerleaders there? And do we in the nonprofit space or the boards and bosses that are employing us to do these jobs, do we not know how to be a cheerleader? You know, there ha- no, there's been a lot of cheerleaders along the way for me personally, but yeah. I think when you are going on your own personal journey, it's a little bit different because, you know, as you get higher and higher in the ranks, no one is going to, you know, (laughs) uh, pat you on the back and say good going all the time because that's what you get paid for. Right. So for me, I had to teach myself to be my biggest cheerleader that even if, hey, maybe I didn't, you know, do that well on that, you know, particular presentation or whatever. I'm just like, you know, one of my favorite um, quotes, and I can't even remember who who says that. I think it's um, uh, Mandela, but it's, you know, I never lose, either I win or I learn. So that's how, when I talk about being a cheerleader, it's like getting out of my head. It's understanding that, okay, maybe I I didn't do so great in that moment. And I can still pat myself on the back and say, you know what, you can change this for the next time pick up on the good, the good things that happen and move on. Right. Because then, then you start, you know, getting bogged down by all that. Um, there's some, you know, there's some managers I had that they could care less and there's some managers that that's all they cared about, you know? So, but I do think it is a personal thing. Do you have to, you have to bet on yourself, right? You cannot, you cannot depend on other people. You know, it's just like you can't depend on someone else to make you happy. And that's where I think, again, giving yourself permission and agency to say, you know what, this is not anybody else's, um, um, anybody else's to deal with. This is for me. I need to be my biggest cheerleader, um, regardless if somebody's cheering me on or not. I have to have that mindset in between gifts and in between, you know, during some slow months or whatever that looks like. Okay. So, and, and, and this is the stuff that, 
this is part of the reason I, I really dive into this is because I can't identify with this stuff. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. a straight white guy and I'm not going to claim to, but you write here, you say fundraising as a woman in wild black is best described as being visible and invisible at the same time. I can't think I'll be perfectly honest. And, and, and the other thing is, is not only am I a white straight guy, I'm six foot four. <laughs> I'm six <laughs> foot four. I've never not been present in the room. You know what I mean? I mean, I just, I, I can't, I can't relate to this a whole lot. It's ex- you, you're right. It's exhausting and on par with what training for a marathon must feel like. In my world, while everyone else is playing checkers, I play chess. And when I thought about that, I thought, damn, that's what I've done my whole career is it's never been harder than probably playing checkers. I mean, that's probably mm-hmm. Lisa. I got to be perfect. I mean, just completely straight up here with you. That's probably the most convicting statement in here. Um is that I, I got to be honest with you. It's never been for me. It's been tough at times. Mm-hmm. And I've been told no. And, you know, the donor, you know, I, I've never really gotten really hard no's, but it's never been harder for me. Unashamedly, I can say it's never been harder for me than probably playing damn checkers. Right. Yeah. Unpack right. that for that. I mean, it, that, that, <laughs> that, that's just, that's just me totally acknowledging your experiences, but I think it's terribly profound. And I think it's, I'm guessing it's completely accurate. Yeah, I think I'll focus more on the chess, you know, the che- the chestnut checkers. And what I mean by that is, you know, whenever I show up, I show up and everybody knows I'm black, right? Yeah. So just like everybody knows when you show up, you're 6'4", right? So mm-hmm. everybody knows that. And maybe not everybody, because sometimes I've shown up and donors are like, where's Lisa Baxter? I'm right <laughs> here, okay? <laughs> um, so, you know, um, and what I mean by that is... For me, it has been a different experience because when I go into when I've gone into new organizations, I have to I can't just jump in. I have to sit back and understand the culture. I have to understand the ecosystem. I have to understand who would potentially be my allies or and or my, you know, accomplices sure. who how am i going to be able to navigate this space what is a language that is spoken within the org because every every organization has their language what are the things that get you noticed all of those things because i used to be on this this thing that every year i needed to get promoted and you know that was just i that's what i thought success was right not understanding that well yeah every year you get promoted you know yes more money but more things you have to do <laughs> more responsibility, more everything. And so, um, you know, and that's when we talk about striving. It was this constant striving and striving. And I didn't understand why was I striving so much? Yeah, I had the the money, but I was really invested in the mission and the, and the, in, in, in what those organizations were doing, but I didn't understand why I felt I had to be more and do more. And that, you know, and that could be anywhere from, you know, my all night, you know, working all night to answering, being available anytime, you know, any time of the day, even on the weekends, like I had no boundaries. I was a workaholic because I knew that while maybe some of my peers could be, you know, could be mediocre, I had to be excellent. And there's always a price you have to pay for that. Now, back in those days, I wasn't married. I didn't have a kid. Now I do. And it's very different. And I take care of my father. It's very different. I had to understand understand what is striving for you? What does success mean for you? 
Not when anybody else says it is, you know. And so I have I had to divorce myself from, you know, hustle hard, the, the whole hustle hard um, kind of thinking and, you know, grind and, you know, no sleep till Brooklyn. That was always my song, you know, for me, from yeah, Beastie yeah. Boys. No sleep yeah. till Brooklyn, you know, because I'm not going to sleep until this gets done. And I in that it was at the sacrifice of my mental health, my yeah. physical health, um, my family. Um, my just the way that I viewed the world and I and in the way that I perceived the world viewed me of never feeling like it was enough and then having everybody tell me at the same time I'm too much you know so it's all these conflicting messages until at one point I was just like I'm not going to listen to anybody but God because that's all that matters right now and I'm just going to get back to me and 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 really think about well, how do I want to show up in this world how do I want to be how do I want to you know just how do I want to be magic in this world okay. so let's and you, um, yeah l- let's use your ch- chess and checkers framework mm-hmm. because I think I think and you've heard you and I've had this conversation and you've probably heard me sort of I'm not I'm not convinced that the the external donor is nearly as problematic in the fundraising experience as a lot of us like to think that the donor happens to be Mm-mm. I think that I think the donor actually knows whoever the whoever the hell the donor happens to be mm-hmm. I think the donor actually knows that we live in a chess like world right to use your framework yeah and mm-hmm. I think a lot of us on the internal side, and granted, it's a lot of white guys and white gals running these shops. We know that. I think a lot of us, and that's pro- this is probably a, a result of our, you know, being rooted in consumerism and the assumptions by which it's, you know, all you got to do is know that they're rich and wealthy and they live in the right neighborhood. And that's not that'll indicate, you know, it, it, is fundraising conditioned on this notion that the it, are the internal voices are the internal sort of what I call wizards sort of rooted in this idea that fundraising is checkers like, and it's really chess. No, I, yeah, you know, I don't know. I just know that what I've experienced has always been a chess game because, you know, in life, life is, is a game. Uh, Business is a game. Right. And so um, you have to be strategic as fundraisers. We always have to be strategic in the way that we approach people, um, the things that we share with them. Um, you know, even the way that you deal with your coworkers but, but, or your bosses. Were you playing so, chess with? Were you playing chess with your colleagues and your bosses, or are you playing chess with your donors? Everybody. It's it's almost like Survivor, you know, because you you in your interact your personal inter individual interactions with people. Yeah. You know, I always say, you know, whether I should put a person in my front pocket or my back pocket, right? Yeah. Front pocket people are there to support you. And help you to navigate this, you know, they're the angels along the way, right? Back pocket people are not there to support you, but you have to work with them. So you have to figure out very strategically, well, how can I work with this person so we can have a harmonious environment? Because the last thing you want to do is have an issue with your peer or your boss or whoever that is. You don't, you want to be able, you know, you may not necessarily like that person or that person may not like you, but you have to figure out, well, how can we, you know, we're all here working towards the greater good. So how can we do this in a way that's going to be, you know, just um, that's going to ultimately lend to, you know, the success of the organization. And so that's why I always say playing chess, because you have to be very careful in what you say, what you do, your next move and all of that. And whether and that's why I just made that that 
um, small um, uh, reference to the don about the donors, you know, before it's like, it, it, it depends. It could be anybody within the organization. It could be any type of situation. You have to figure out the best way out. You say here, keeping my mouth shut while the racism, microaggressions, and unacceptable behavior of my peers and managers continued only made me feel numb, a shell of a person, a robot even. Yeah. I mean, that's... that's yeah, that's... That's, that, that's heavy. That, that's heavy. It is. And I even feel it right now because I'm still, you know, I'm still going through a healing process with that. And I, and I yeah. have a lot of triggers. Um, and yeah, it... A large part of it. Forgive Uh me for interrupting. I I don't think I've ever felt that way. So help me understand. I don't think I I, I have felt like shit before. I've had a boss be a jerk. I've had a donor not tell me what I want them to tell me. But what am I not getting? Because I don't think I've ever felt that. I've never felt that way. I've never felt that way. So what don't what don't I? And I don't think anybody who looks and acts and lives in the world like I do has mm-hmm. felt a whole lot of that. So why, what, what does that feel like? Well, first of all, now we have the words, right? Before yeah. we didn't have the words to describe what's going on. The microaggressions gap, like there was, these weren't words that I was familiar with, you know, yeah. like the misogynoir, like I didn't have words to express what was going on with me. I just was like, you know, these people are racist. Like, that's all I thought. I'm like, okay, so how do I navigate this? And what I mean about, you know, you don't have to, um, sacrifice your silence for success is that you can speak up about it because I didn't feel that I had the permission or the license to speak up about it because, you know, I wasn't as far along as I I have gone now in my career. And, you know, I I came into fundraising by happenstance, as many of us do. I was in my 20s, you know, just learning the ropes. And when I say I just kind of like was pushed in the door, I was, I'm grateful for it. And I was pushed in the door and it's either you sink or swim. And so I realized very early on what I needed to do to swim. And a lot of that meant keeping your mouth shut even though you understood that if that person had ever said whatever they said to you in the streets, it probably would have been a different situation, right? Like, like I come from South Central, so there's a different, (laughs) there is a different kind of code out here, right? And, and it was like, wow, I didn't understand why people were so disrespectful just because, you know, of my, they felt disrespected just because of my presence or why did they feel challenged or intimidated? I mean, it got to a point where I knew when people got intimidated by me and I literally would do everything to shrink myself to make people feel better. And I didn't understand that's what I was doing. I just thought I was playing the game, you know, so I would hear, you know, just racist comments and, oh, you know, even even about my uh, I had a manager comment on my confidence at one point. And I'm like, why are you asking me this question? You know, you and it was like it was almost like how how do you have the license to be confident, you know, when, and, and obviously she was projecting at that moment in time, but, you know, I just, at those, at that time, I didn't know how to articulate. I didn't know how to fight back. I just knew that it was wrong. And so when I really realized through therapy, what, you know, all the racial trauma that I have kept inside, I realized how bad that was that I couldn't address it. I had to learn how to forgive myself first. So that's what that was the first step for me to forgive myself for not saying anything, forgive myself and actually forgive those people, you know, forgive them because I understand that 
nine times out of 10, it's not about you. Right. And so I had to forgive them as well. And um, it is a heavy thing for me to unpack because. Who doesn't want, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Lisa. uh Who doesn't want a confident person in an office? I've always been told I was confident and I don't think I've ever been criticized for it. So what am I, what what is, what is somebody who's listening to this, not understanding if they're in my seat, what's wrong with being confident? I don't think there's anything with being confident, but I just know as being a a black woman in yes. in this black body that these this the the thing that people get intimidated the most is by someone who knows themselves, who is confident and who feels empowered and whose light just shines, right? Like I'm I'm not cocky. I am confident and there's a difference. And all and throughout my career, people have told me to humble myself. And I'm like, humble myself. I'm like, I'm just confident in the job that I do. I love what I do and it shows, right? And no one would ever say that to my white counterpart, right? It it's it's lauded, you know, for my white counterparts. But for me, it was like, I want you to be confident, but I only want you to be confident to where I can handle it. Right. So that it becomes that, you know, that manager, that peers, you know, issue. And, um, and I do believe there is nothing, there's nothing more scarier to people than a, than a black woman that knows herself and, and, and knows, you know, and understands her value. And so for me, it was about pushing past that and doing it anyway, and being bold anyway, and just being confident in myself, no matter what assumptions were made about me, no matter what things were said behind my back, or no matter what types of things were going on to, you know, derail whatever it was that I had going on. And when you talk and going back to the whole chess situation, yeah, yeah. you know, because I've had, I've, I've really honed this skill of playing chess, I knew exactly when, who, and what was being said and all of that, because, again, I had allies, maybe allies that maybe my manager or my peer didn't know about. So I would find out about things so I wouldn't be blind. So you see what I'm saying? So I was it was almost like going to war uh, and I had to be the best general. I had to figure out, you know, how to go into battle every day. And that's how I liken it, how, you know, it's as much as it has been a beautiful thing because, you know, philanthropy and, and, and leading someone to make a big impact is such an amazing thing. This is the ugly part of fundraising that no one wants to talk about. And it's still there. It's still prevalent. I don't care if you have, you know, an inclusion and diversity committee at your organization right now. If you are not really checking in with your employees and changing behaviors and, you know, and, and, and on all different levels, then it's not going to change. It's just going to be performative. And so um, I just think that me saying this so boldly and loudly, there are going to be people that are offended by it. But I don't care because we have to move past this. We have to get, you know, to the truth. And the only way you can start dismantling systems is if you speak the truth. And, and this is my truth. So I'm not going to sit here and say everybody has had this experience. This has been my personal experience that I'm speaking out about, that I'm healing from. And I'm just so happy to now be in the healing part of it. And the anger is not there anymore. That's the most beautiful part. So Lisa, you do walk us through, and I won't ask you to unravel the whole thing. And folks, from for, for our listeners, I want to remind you that 
Lisa wrote a beautiful article in, in addition to the rest of our contributors that you can download on our website. We'll put that in the show notes. But Lisa, you do describe this sort of this healing process that you went through. You start with your faith. You started with your faith being a part of that. Can you sort of just tell us some of those places that you went during that 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 healing process before we let you go? Yeah, definitely my faith. Definitely a great support, um, a support of family and friends and um, and just some deep. Um, just deep inner work. I think that has been the best thing from, uh, that has been one of the best things and me not being afraid of therapy. I started therapy last year and I'm going to tell you, it's been the hardest thing, but it's been the most amazing thing. And now I understand what people mean by, you know, go get a therapist because (laughs) it's really helped me. And so I'm thankful for it and, um, I'm blessed and, you know, it has really truly been my faith in God that has carried me you know, there's a song that says we've come this far by faith. Yes, I've come this far by faith because I always knew that no matter what, he just had my back. So very thankful. And music, I have to, you know, something, in, in, if you kind of read between the lines of your whole article, you, you're constantly sort of, music has to play a part in this, in your healing. Oh process. my gosh, yes. And that's okay. why, you know, and I knew that was very different. This is yeah. not the typical fundraising essay, <laughs> um, you know, and, you know, and yes, it is a nod to my, you know, my background. I used to be an entertainment and music writer back in the day, one of my many nine lives, but um, <laughs> music has always been a part of my life very heavily my dad, you know, like in our, if you came in our house, we were playing all different types of music. Like I don't, you know, I'm all over the place with the the music that I love, but the thing for me, it is very healing. And there have, there's music that marks different times in my life. And like that Sonoba Say song that, you know, um, that I have, I owe you nothing. That is the perfect song to really, um, earmark this journey at this time today, um, and, um, it's, it's just healing for me and it's fun. You know, sometimes I would play music to, you know, make me happy and dance, which, you know, like I, like I said, you know, dancing is very therapeutic for me and, um, you know, and people can read, you know, the rest in, in, in the essay. I don't want to give everything away, but, but just know that you have to do whatever it is to make you, you happy. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks, what makes you happy. And I think a lot of us in this, in this moment in time need to ask ourselves, what makes you happy and go do that. Just go do it. Yeah. Yeah. Lisa, you've, you've been on here multiple times. I'm delighted Mm -hmm. to have you back. I'm really glad that we got some really great content. So you could be a featured artist featured writer in the uh, in carefully and critically somebody's probably listening to the conversation they're saying I don't really care what Jason said I've heard Jason all the time uh, but I want to reach out to Lisa how would you suggest mm-hmm. that they do that you can reach out to me on LinkedIn the um, the uh, folks we will put the uh, we'll put Lisa's information uh, for LinkedIn in the show notes. We'll also put a link to the, uh, to the article. Lisa, you are always welcome back. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jason. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read in this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional? Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions 
about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.